This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Many listeners are aware that my wife Sharona is a pioneer in applying post-colonial feminist theory to many issues faced by Jewish women in the modern age. And for today's episode, I've decided to share the recording of a class Sharona taught at our Atid online leadership program on her introduction to Hebrew feminism. Uh, I think many of you will find it interesting. I certainly do. And for those of you who really enjoy this episode and the ideas presented, uh, I'd highly encourage you to apply for the next cohort of our Atid online leadership program. You can find the link at visionmovement.org. Uh, if you click on programs, just look for the Atid online leadership program. And uh, we are now currently taking applications. So uh, if you like this episode, go ahead and do that. I think you'd really enjoy learning together with us beginning after the Chagim. And now before I sign out and let you listen to my wife, I want to let you know that if you're interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage eight four. So today we're going to be talking about Hebrew feminism, which is the application of post-colonial theory to Hebrew feminism. So before we start with that, though, we're going to go through some background of other forms of feminism, just uh, so we can do kind of a comparison. Um, so I guess we'll start with, is anyone familiar with first wave feminism, like the various waves? Okay. Uh, Dana, you want to share it? I'm not as familiar probably as you are, so but I would just say it was something I was thinking about when we were just having the conversation before in that like it was the sort of first generation of sort of women who were relatively socioeconomic status wise, like more wealthy and were able to push for like women's rights in a way that may not have encompassed the diversity of women that it was arguing for. And that like, after that, the differences between women became more and more pronounced to second and third where they didn't have as much in common or they didn't need to say they had as much in common and could acknowledge their different struggles. But I kind of want to turn it over to you for that. <laughs> so yeah, so so first wave feminism took place in like the early 1900s. It was about basic rights, like suffrage and property rights, just like basic, you know, equalization of rights for women. Um, second wave feminism came along with the sexual revolution. And that was much more about women's sexual rights. So, you know, not being harassed in the workplace, not marital rape, access to birth control pills, those kinds of things. And third wave feminism started in the 90s. And it was much less about rights and much more about the way we, we view women and gender in general, uh, the way, you know, the way that media portrays women, um, in, you know, it, it was much uh, less tangible. Um, it was much more about the way we understand what, what it is to be a woman. So, right, th those were the standard, what I would say, Raquel, white girl feminist waves. Um, and alongside the second and third wave, Shulamit mentioned that there was kind of like a split um, and I wouldn't call it a wave, I would call it, it, it was a critique, it was called critical race feminism that really started with around the second wave, um, and it continues today, where women of color 
you know, they, they kind of realized that they weren't being represented and their needs, their unique needs weren't being represented um, within these waves and what these women were fighting for. So I'm just going to introduce you guys to a couple of thought leaders of critical race feminism and some ideas um, that I think we could, before we even get to post-colonial feminism, just I think a lot of critical race theory also can be applied to the Jewish female experience. So one, one of the biggest uh, thought leaders of critical race feminism is Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. And she was, she was on the legal team for Anita Hill, who sued Clarence Thomas, the, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, nominee. So in one of the one of her um, writings after that case, Crenshaw wrote, um, she actually coined the term intersectionality. She was referring to the intersection of where gender meets race. And this idea that someone who's a black female can't really be understood by black men or by white women. And so they can't really share their full experience. Um, for example, in the, in the case of like black on black rape, it, that experience is tied up with all sorts of different factors and cultural cues within their community that can't be understood in the same way that like a white on white rape would happen or black on white or white on black. So that was uh, what she contributed. Next is Margaret Montoya. And she, she's a Latina American critical race feminist. Also, I think also a lawyer. And she writes this like really amazing memoir. And in it, she coins the term unmasking, where she talks about this idea that uh, someone who's, who's in an oppressed group needs to go through this experience of unmasking themselves, which is really just another word of decolonizing, like decolonizing someone's identity. And um, she also talks about, she mentions that um, a Latina woman can't unmask her Latinaness without unmasking her femaleness and vice versa, that it has to be a complete unmasking together, like a holistic unmasking. And the last, uh, the last feminist I want to introduce you guys to is Mary Matsuda. She's an Asian American critical race feminist, and she talks about this idea of multiple consciousness, which is somewhat similar to intersectionality. This idea that uh, women of color have these various identities in their head and in, in an attempt to make themselves understood and even to understand themselves and to understand like to make other people understand them they're constantly having to express one identity at the expense of others meaning sometimes they're expressing their their feminine identity and sometimes they're expressing their racial identity but it's like it's hard for them to express it holistically so the reason why i introduced you specifically to these three is because I think these concepts can be really easily applied actually to a lot of the Jewish experience. So as a personal example, uh, when I was in college, I was physically assaulted on campus by the president of the Students for Justice in Palestine. And um, he was a man. And uh, you know, it got a lot of publicity in the pro-Israel world. And when they, when they presented my story, it was always presented as either this like, big scary man, you know, <laughs> assaulted this little woman, or it was this really anti-Israel, like anti-Semite, you know, attacked this pro-Israel student. And it wasn't really, you know, the intermix of, of being a Jew and a woman together and being assaulted on both fronts together at the same time was never really expressed by anyone who was telling my story. And also when I would express it, I would usually express it in one of those ways. And I'm sure, you guys all have stories too, where 
you know, of similar experiences, hopefully not experiences like that, but experiences where your Jewish identity and your female identity couldn't totally be expressed together, either because it was hard for you to express it in a way other people would understand, or because other people were kind of taking the story from you and saying it in a way that they could understand. So for Margaret Montoya, she, I actually want to read you guys some quotes from her memoir. And I'm just going to, before I read it, I'm just going to switch out the words. I went through it already and I switched out every word of Latina to Jewish. And that's basically all I did. I didn't really switch anything else. Presenting an acceptable face, speaking without a Jewish accent, hiding what we really felt, masking our inner selves, were defenses against racism passed on to us by our parents to help us get along in, in school and in society. We struggled to be seen as Jewish, but also wanted acceptance as Americans at a time when the mental image conjured up by that word included only Anglos. So I think that that doesn't necessarily apply today, but that definitely applies to our grandparents' generation. And a lot of these do. I'll read a couple more. The widespread acceptance of assimilationist thought fueled social and familial pressure on Jews to abandon traditional values and lifestyles in order to achieve educational and upward economic mobility. When members of the dominant culture mask themselves to control the impressions they make, such behavior is not inherently self-loathing. But when we attempt to mask immutable characteristics of complexion, nose shape, or hair texture, because they historically have been loathsome to the dominant culture, then the masks of acculturation can be experienced as self-hate. So I'll just ask you guys a question. Um, how many of you know a Jewish woman who's gotten a nose job? Wow. And how many of you guys either used to or do or know someone who straightens their hair on a regular basis? So this is exactly what Margaret Montoya is talking about, that these attempts to make ourselves look more like the standard version of white beauty can be experienced as a form of self-hate because we're in an oppressive group trying to change our immutable features to fit in with the dominant group. Every time I've taught this class, almost everyone raises their hand for both of those questions. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's everywhere. In my family, a nose job is a rite of passage. Everyone gets one. And lastly, um, Mary Matsuda, where she talks about multiple consciousness. I'll give another personal example. And then I'd love to hear if anyone else has any examples too. Okay, sorry. I'm not super familiar with Zoom. Shulimi and Raquel, you guys have questions? Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, so first of all, I'm really sorry to hear that that happened to you about the assault. That's awful. Um, I wanted to ask, I'm a little bit confused about what you meant that like the woman and Jewish identity wasn't talked about like together. Like I understand like sometimes I read media article titles and I'm like, wow, that's like totally from not from a Jewish perspective, the way that that was written. But can you explain, I guess, what you not preferred, but like would have liked to hear it characterized as that, that covers both of those things? It's a good question. Um, the truth is I'm not, I'm not sure it could have been. Um, however, it, it should have been expressed in a way that would have been holistic. That it's true that, that it wouldn't have achieved its purpose, whatever the purpose was of the people publishing it. Meaning the, you know, stand with us publishing an article if they had like talked about the history of like how like Jewish women are perceived and like the stereotypes against Jewish women and what that would have, you know, the background of, of how that could affect like um, violence towards Jewish women. Like none of that, that's not what they were looking, that's not what they were looking to do. They were looking to show how bad the Palestinians were and how, you know, 
meek the Jewish student was. So I, I'm not sure I expected anything different. It's not like I was, I was like disappointed, but it's something that I'm definitely aware of that it wasn't, you know, the two are, the, the two are integrated, meaning it wasn't just as a woman for the rest of the year, I was really scared because I ended up suing the university and, and he was sued by the DA. So the rest of the, the school year, I was really scared when I, you know, when I would be walking alone, I had to get a, a restraining order against him. Like there was, there was like a lot of fear as, as a woman, as someone who's probably not as strong as him and not in a position to, to like fight against him. Um, and there was also this like sense, this like, you know, the, given where I was at the time in terms of my own journey, there was a sense of like pride and fighting for Israel. And, and you know, like that I was the president of the Israel group at the time. So the, there are two aspects of it. And they weren't they, like they weren't both represented. And I'm, I'm like, I'm distinctly aware of that because it's my story. But I don't necessarily like expect that it should have been presented differently. But that's part of what's so sad about this, that I think all women come to just expect that their story isn't fully expressed. So another example I have is um, when I was in high school, um, I was on the varsity roller hockey team and it was uh, it was all men. And most of the schools we played against were all men. There were very rarely women. And we were I went to a Jewish day school and we were actually really good. We were we were we were a really good hockey team. And, you know, the same thing, like the, the way that I, depending on who I was talking to, the the pride that would come out was very different, right? If I, you know, if I was talking to my Jewish friends, then it would be like, yeah, I'm like the only woman, I'm like really baller. Like I'm the only woman on this hockey team and I, you know, it's like cool. Um, but if I was talking to, you know, someone else, then it, there was a sense of pride. Like my Jewish school is like tough enough to play against these, like uh, right near the border of Mexico. Like most of the teams we would play against were like, big buff like Mexicans <laughs> and that was also a source of pride like that this Jewish team could like play like rough hockey against them and and win but again like the no one really cared about my experience like being on this like men's hockey team but also not being able to to like walk to the store to get a snack before the game by myself like you know the coach making me walk with someone or like what do I do in the changing room? Because there's like all these Jewish modesty issues, but also as a woman, like none of that stuff ever got expressed. I'm again, I'm sure if you guys think about it, you all have so many examples like this. And to just know that it, that it is like, that is expressive. I mean, you can choose to say Jews are, are people of color or not, but our experience is often very similar to, to women of color, at least in my, in my experience. Um, and a lot of these concepts I think are applicable to us. Anyway, yeah. I have a couple of questions. Um, so, okay. I wondered definition wise, what female means in the context of this talk, as opposed to woman in that you're using female, as far as I've heard so far, maybe you said women at one point, but I wondered if what the difference was for you, but I also wondered inciting critical race, feminism, so I'm in a PhD program right now. And I know that for myself, like most people be like, shut up. You're, you don't know what it's like to be a person of color. Um, why are you saying all these people are similar to, you know, they, that they really describe our experience. Like that's not you. So I guess my, one of the things I find interesting is like, are we reifying? And then also race is 
culturally constructed concept. So like, are we reifying race by going into this sort of like racial dimensions and or like what happens when all the scholars don't wanna engage with you because they don't think that you're, what you're, I mean, sure, we can always be alone as we have been right on the side and doing our own thing. But like, I guess within a context of, like, I wish those women would say, you are right, Sharona, totally relate. But like, I don't know that they would. And that's like my question for myself whenever I'm studying anything is like, how would it be received? And like, I guess to some extent that matters to me only because it just controls the degree to which we can have conversations across our identities or not. Totally. No, I think that's a really good question. Um, so first of all, I don't know that I would give the same the same talk to you know a bunch of people who are not Jewish women. Um, I'm talking to you guys just so that you can like to open up your minds to this idea that the Jewish experience is not a white experience. It's not. It might you know it might not be a person of color experience, but it's definitely not a white experience. And I think in terms of how do we express that to to people who are not part of our community. Right now, Jews are seen as privileged white people because we work really hard to maintain that image. Like as a community, we work, like, like most of our efforts are put into <laughs> making us accepted by the privileged white America. And I think that obviously before we can have this conversation with the broader communities, uh, we definitely need to, to work on ourselves and not just in the way that we represent ourselves, but on who we really like, who we really see ourselves as and understand who we really are and what our oppression really has been. Because our oppression is not the same as other people of color. It's different, but it does exist. And one of the main parts of our oppression is how hard we have to work to be white. Meaning the fact that we constantly have to sacrifice so much, so many of our values, the fact that we all have to get those jobs, the fact that like the fact that we have to change who we are so deeply to be accepted as white. And we might succeed sometimes, but that in and of itself is oppression. If we have to compromise on who we really are in order to be white, then that is, is in and of itself oppression because it can't be who we are. Um, so I think we really need to work on ourselves and, and understanding that. And once, once we like as a community have come to a place where we kind of like live that, then I think it's gonna be a lot easier to have these conversations with other people. But coming in now in the way that we're seen, <laughs> it, like, yeah, it would be a joke. Like people would just be offended or laugh at us for sure. But I think part of our decolonization has to be having these discussions internally for sure. That makes sense. Okay, anyway, uh, moving on to global feminism. Have you guys heard that term before? So global feminism, in short, is basically the exportation of white girl feminism to the rest of the world, uh, meaning egalitarianism, equality, maybe basic rights. So I'll give you I'll give you some examples of what global feminism is. Uh, have you guys heard of the Burkini ban in France? Okay, so I'll I'll, I'll just uh, quickly explain. Um, Burkinis are bathing suits that are modest for Muslim women. Um, they have something similar actually in Israel that a lot of Jewish women wear too. Um, and in France, they banned them from beaches because they said Muslim women are oppressed and we want to help them by, you know, if they have the choice, then their husbands will force them to wear the burkini. But if we just ban it, then we can liberate them and their husbands won't really have a choice. They'll just have to wear bikinis. 
that's one example. I'm not going to go into the critiques yet, but that, that's one example of global feminism. Another example is Hillary Clinton's excuse for going into Afghanistan, invading Afghanistan. She said it was to help the local, like liberate the local women. Um, let's see, another example, schooling in India. Um, this example doesn't just apply to women there, uh, but women are obviously affected. There, there have been a lot of attempts to bring Western education into India, into Indian villages. And, you know, like the, the idea is bring them into the global world, give them um, the ability to compete with Western educated people uh, by giving them a Western style education. And the last example is the sanitary napkin revolution in India. Um, maybe you guys have seen the movie Padman. I don't know. It's an interesting movie. But there, there is basically like a, a sanitary pad revolution in India where women didn't have access to uh, disposable sanitary pads. And someone came in and made them very cheap and hygienic. And now women, the idea is that now women are able to go to school. They don't have to drop out. They're more hygienic. They don't get sick. Okay. So those are all examples of global feminism. One other example, although usually I bring it up, but I know it's <laughs> it might be kind of a tense topic right now in America, but uh, like formulas for in South America and, and Africa. This idea of liberating women, allowing them to go work outside the home by bringing formula to these communities in other countries. Okay, so before I talk about the critiques, I'm gonna talk about some issues in the Jewish community that are also being affected right now by global feminism. And again, I'm not going to do critiques yet. Are you guys familiar with the term agunot or aguna? No, okay. So it means a chained woman. And in our culture, uh, a woman is not allowed to remarry unless she has a, a Jewish divorce. And a Jewish divorce can only be obtained if her husband gives it to her, like hands it to her. So there are women whose husbands refuse to give them this divorce, which is called a get. And then they're chained to him because they can't remarry. If they remarry then and have kids, their kids will be mom's dream. And so they're kind of in a stuck position. So this uh, one example of, of global feminism as of a global feminist solution has been what's called a halachic prenup, which is, uh, you guys are familiar with, with what prenups are, right? It's something you sign beforehand that, that's about money. So a halachic prenup uh, says that if a woman wants a divorce, then every day that she doesn't get the get, he owes her some sum of money. That's been a very popular, especially in America, it's been a very popular uh, way to address the Aguna crisis. It's called the Aguna crisis. Another example is what's called the Shidduch crisis. Um, Shidduch means like matchmaking. So right now in many parts of the Jewish world, unfortunately, there's like just like a matching problem where there are like a lot of women who want to get married and they just can't seem to find eligible men. And what has become a global feminist solution, what I would call a global feminist solution, has just been to kind of accept like Western relationships as the norm and kind of accept that premarital sex is a given and is um, unavoidable and that getting married late is kind of just like the normal thing to do and like what everyone does anyway and you can't avoid it. Yeah, should me. Just because I want to understand this example as you take it forward, the Shidduch crisis being about matching, but how specifically does it relate to women and not men or differently? Just so I can understand this as we like move forward, because I've heard different things about it. So I'm not quite sure like what the takeaway sort of that you want sure. us to have. 
first of all, I'd be interested to hear what things you've heard about it. But um, in general, I think women are affected by this more than men, meaning there are more women who are trying to find their match than men. And it's it's more often women who are like, for example, okay, and I'm mostly talking about women who care about Jewish law and in an ideal world would not have premarital sex and an ideal world would be able to just like find their match. And these women are, I think, are often the ones who are making more of the compromises. Like, for example, there's a there's a mikvah in New York City. So the mikvah is like a ritual purifying bath that women use before engaging in sex. And there's one now that exists, which honestly doesn't make any sense, but it exists just for unmarried women, like for single women to just accept like Western relationships and like premarital relationships as normal. And to just say that, like, you know, until people can find their match, just that's just like what's going to happen. That's normal. It's unavoidable. And kind of just like turn a blind eye because this issue of women just like having premarital sex has become so like so the norm that they're trying to at least make it less severe, make it less severe. Context that I've heard about it actually is more so in terms of men having, I mean, this is the context that I've heard of it and that people have talked about it. It's like men having ridiculous expectations of like much younger women that they can be matched with who look like that whole beauty standard that we're not supposed to buy into with Botox and all this stuff. And like, you know, being super demanding and wanting everything, but that is, I'm sure only part of it. And it's mostly been like covered by like journalists, like Orthodox women journalists in New York. It's like how I, or like my own experience or whatever. That sounds like it goes hand in hand. It doesn't sound like it contradicts, meaning if there are a lot more women looking for matches than men, then men are in a position or might feel that they're in a position to make those demands. I just want to say, which they're still like buying into from Western culture. Like it all, it's like, it's all a cycle. That sounds perfectly right. So the next example I want to bring up is this need for women to feel uh, valued just in their communities. The need for them to feel like they have a place and like a sense of importance in their communities. And the global feminist solution has been to give women the same roles as men to feel as valued as the men do in the community. And the last example, uh, which is much more relevant to Israel than America, is immersion in the mikvah and the right to privacy. So the mikvah is like a ritual bath. And in order to do it, there's what's called the balanit, a mikvah lady, who watches the immersion to make sure that it's done correctly, like properly. And a lot of these, these mikvah ladies are like older Sephardic, like kind of insensitive women who like have no, who have like no sense of like shame or privacy or like any, like they just like don't care and don't have time and or patience for it. Um, so th- there was a few years ago, there was like a, a big uh, outcry among younger women who wanted to change. And the solution, which I would also identify as a global feminist solution was um, to allow women to either immerse alone or to bring a friend to be a McFlady for them. And ultimately the revenue did enforce that. So that is not the rule in Israel. I mean, there are also McFladies, but there are other options. Okay. So now we're gonna get into the critique of global feminism, which is called transnational feminism or post-colonial feminism, which is what we're actually <laughs> the actual point of the of the talk today. 
So transnational feminism is a post-colonial critique of global feminism as, and it, it's claims that global feminism is cultural and economic imperialism. And I'll just give you a quick quote from a book called Scattered Hegemonies, which is the book that might even have coined the term transnational feminism. Global feminism has stood for a kind of Western cultural imperialism. It has elided the diversity of women's agency in favor of a universalized Western model of women's liberation that celebrates individuality and modernity. This idea that all women around the world like have the same values, have the same like interests in individuality and modernity as white women in the West. And it's, its goal is to bring that to the world. So just applying that critique to, to those examples that, that we gave before, I think the Burkini in France becomes really obvious what the critique is, which is an enforcement of secularism. It's actually like stripping women of their rights to choose how to dress. The war in Afghanistan, the transnational critique was, it was absolutely not, it was not um, for the purpose of liberating Afghan women. It was actually for an exploitation of local resources, which hurt women. And it also silenced local women's organizations because it had no communication with the, the local women's organizations at all. In terms of schooling in India, uh, the, the critique is that it created a dependency on the global economy, um, but also didn't allow, allow them the actual real chance to compete because someone like actually educated in the West is always gonna have a leg up to someone who's educated in India, um, even if it's with a Western schooling system. Um, and on top of that, it, it eroded the traditional lifestyle and the local economic structure so much so that these, these children who would have grown up having a knowledge of the local economic structure and been able to compete locally, um, instead are like, have no, have no local skills or knowledge whatsoever. And they, they can't compete on the global economy. So it's caused a lot of actually jobless Indians. And lastly, the, the sanitary napkin revolution in India, it created a non-essential dependency on disposable and costly items. And it's actually really hypocritical because in the West, there's a huge push for reusable sanitary napkins. Whereas in India, they had a process that sanitized you know, these products for centuries and they've created this dependency um, like to benefit these companies because there's no more market for it in America or in the West because they're actually pushing for what Indians have done for hundreds of years. So now to just go through the same, like to do the same thing with the Jewish issues. For the Aguna crisis, again, the, just to remind you, the, the solution was the halachic prenup um, for the women who were chained in their marriages. So the critique of that is that, okay, it requires some background. A Hebrew marriage and a Western marriage are fundamentally different. In a Western marriage, Two people, they love each other very much. They decide they want to spend their lives together. They get married and, you know, hopefully they continue to love each other very much and live together happily together, but as separate individuals, but together. Okay. A Hebrew marriage is, is completely different. The way that we've always understood a Hebrew marriage is that two people who love each other very much, they decide they want to get married. They get married. They live together happily, but the two people fuse into a being that's completely different than the two individuals. That's how we understand the goal of marriage is for two people to literally become something else together. Um, so when we understand that, we can understand why signing a, like any kind of prenup in a Western marriage makes a lot of sense because it doesn't really matter. You know, you want to protect, you're staying an individual. I mean, you want to spend your life with this person, but you're anyway an individual. You want to protect your individual assets, whatever it is. 
So applying that though, in this context to a Hebrew marriage creates a huge psychological barrier, potentials, I don't wanna say it does, a huge potential psychological barrier to fusing into one being. Meaning if before a marriage, you're signing something that not only talks about divorce, but actually in some ways encourages divorce. Because as soon as someone decides, according to that contract, as soon as, as soon as someone decides they want to get a divorce, there's a penalty for not doing it. Meaning there's no, there's really no opportunity for reconciliation or, or encouragement of reconciliation at all. Now, again, most, you know, a lot of couples can probably overcome that and still fuse into, into one being in a Hebrew marriage, but on a societal level, there's definitely a trickle-down effect of the way, you know, an erosion of the way that we understand marriage. Um, and it definitely affects that. Okay, and the next one is shidduch crisis. Um, and this, again, this acceptance of Western relationship norms. So that's just, I mean, that's basically just further colonization of our identity. That's just like, you know, turning a blind eye to like an entire Jewish community doing something that's totally antithetical to our culture is, com- is a completely unacceptable solution to a really major problem. Okay, the next one is the need to like for women to feel valued in the Jewish public and the solution being egalitarianism. So egalitarianism is really just another way of saying equality as uniformity, meaning people are only the same if they fulfill the same roles, as opposed to in Hebrew culture where we've traditionally understood equality as unity, meaning that everyone's role is absolutely essential to the proper functioning of society. And therefore, um, each role is valued as, as significant. Um, whereas if only one role is valued and then everyone just wants to like take on that role, uh, that's highly problematic. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much the definition of Western society, meaning Hebrew civilization has always been about valuing each person's unique role and contribution to society in a different way and making everyone be the exact same and have the same role is a very Western idea, but it's totally antithetical to our culture. And lastly, the right to privacy and this idea of immersing alone again like certain women might be able to overcome, like might still take this very seriously, but uh, immersing in the mikvah is, is really important to, to our culture. This idea of uh, ritual purity is something that we've always taken really seriously. And to have women be able to immerse with someone who doesn't necessarily know all of the laws and might not be doing it correctly. Again, some women might come and bring their friend who's super knowledgeable in the laws and, and cares a lot, but as a society, we're prioritizing the right to privacy over the importance of ritual purity. So again, so this is from uh, from that same book by Grewal and Kaplan. The question becomes how to link diverse feminisms without requiring either equivalence or a master theory. How to make these links without replicating cultural and economic hegemony. In other words, so what do we do? What like if if that's not the answer? If bringing global feminism is not the answer to to addressing these problems, then what do we do? So post-colonial feminism consists of three things. Uh, it has to originate from the internal worldviews and sociocultural factors of, of that culture. It has to preserve the value system and prioritization of values of that culture. And it has to seek solutions through the unique cultural and historical lens. The solutions can't contradict what that culture is all about and what its values are. Okay, so I can go through right now the solutions to that I have that I've thought of for he, like Hebrew feminist solutions to these issues, or we could do questions. I don't know. 
Yeah. Okay. We'll do it fast. Okay. So for the Aguna crisis, that's the chained women who can't get out of their divorce. Um, the truth is the Aguna crisis is a very recent crisis. We used to have an extremely effective, extremely effective solution for it. And we stopped doing it because it was deemed savage by the West. And that created an Aguna crisis. And now our solution has been to bring in a Western solution. That's also probably, you know, that's kind of deteriorating our view of marriage. But the solution that we used to do was to just physically beat up the man until he he gave the get. Yeah, I'm all for it too. <laughs> um, not only is it effective, it's actually in my mind more moral than a lot of these other a lot of other options. A first of all, halachic prenup is a problem because of the way it, it views Hebrew marriage. But another um, another approach has been to just like defame people online, like defame men online, which might be effective, but also it doesn't allow the man ever to do teshuva, like to ever decide he did something wrong and, and because his his face is everywhere forever. Whereas if a Beitin um, goes and just beats him up, even privately, quietly, uh, he'll do the right thing, but he also has the ability later to say like, you know, what I did was messed up and, and I'm sorry and, you know, I shouldn't have done it. So I actually think it's more moral, but we stopped doing it because it was deemed savage. So I think that's a, a good Hebrew feminist solution. So for the for the shidduch crisis, my solution is something called plugshut, which needs to be explored more. I don't want to. I don't want you guys to walk away like saying that Sharona thinks that plugshut should be brought back. Plugshut is typically, um, as usual, it's typically wrongly translated as concubines, but that's not what it is. Uh, plugshut, in the way that we traditionally understood it, is basically like a Western marriage. It's basically two people who um, sign a contract and can engage in sexual relations in a halakhically defined way, um, but stay individuals. And when they want the contract to end, there's no get involved. There's like, they can put in the contract in the beginning, whatever things they want. The only real requirements are that the woman goes to mikvah and that after the, the relationship ends, she doesn't engage in any other relations for 90 days. Just to prevent like confusion about pregnancy, um, like fatherhood. So that's definitely, that's definitely something that's not normal today. I just want to be clear. That's not something that's like in practice today, but it is something that has been in practice in the past in our culture definitely exists. And I personally think should be explored as an option, given that a lot of people are not ready to get married when they're 15 or 16, you know, and, and have certain needs, this need to feel valued and, and, um, the solution being egalitarianism. I think that what we need to do instead is reprioritize uh, the collective versus the individual. So I'll give you guys a quick example um, or a quick story. My friend, she went to a school called Beis Yaakov, which I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's like extremely, extremely kind of Haredi girl school. Um, so she went to that school and she, she told me a story where she had a substitute teacher that was teaching them that uh, when they get married, they should never let their husbands take out the trash. They should always take out the trash for their husband because they should want to be married to a Talmud Chacham, like a Torah scholar, instead of, and not a, a garbage collector. <laughs> now, she was obviously mortified by that because what about her? Like, so she's supposed to be the garbage collector, right? I was also like really struck by that, but not so much because why should she be the garbage collector and not him? But rather, why is it so bad to be a garbage collector? Meaning a garbage collector is an essential 
part of, of society of making society function. The garbage collector is really working for the benefit of the collective. And in our society, what we should be striving, like that, that is how Hebrew people have generally have typically seen society, meaning the people who, who serve the collective have always been the people in the most honored positions. Like for example, the Kwanim, right? Their entire job is to serve the nation. Like it, it has nothing to do with them at all. And they're the most, they're the most honored. And individual success is kind of like not as important. Like there are some people who did it, but it wasn't like considered like the highest form of glory. And in the society, like in Western society, that's why Western feminism came about because like you were only worth something if you as an individual succeeded at something, if you were a successful person um, and it had nothing to do with benefiting the collective. So I think instead of working on like making it so that women also are able to succeed as individuals, we need to work on reprioritizing how we value collective roles versus individualist roles. Okay. And lastly, this issue with right to privacy in the mikvah, just the easiest solution is to give mikvah ladies sensitivity training, um, obviously. <laughs> and and they're actually like in response to, there, there was a whole fight with the Ramanut here um, about, about like wanting women to not have to have mikvah ladies and eventually those women won. And so now that's the rule. But in response to that, there was, there were organizations that popped up that started giving sensitivity training to mikvah ladies and it made a huge difference also.